not too long ago, a line of uh, thunderstorms came through Fort Worth, and as storms approached from the west, you know, we, we encountered several warnings, didn't we, that, that sort of escalated. As the uh, storms approached, you know, days before, we, we had the kind of normal bad weather coming alert from from the Weather Channel, and that eventually escalated to a severe thunderstorm watch, and that turned into a severe thunderstorm warning, and then the clouds turned dark, and the skies turned green, and then the thunder starts pounding in the distance, and then we heard the sirens. Depending on where you live, tornado sirens warned us to find shelter as the storms past here on the, on the west side of Fort Worth. As we make our way through Revelation, we encounter similar warnings that, that escalate as the book continues. The storm of God's wrath is approaching, but as that storm approaches, God, God sends numerous warnings Some of them we've observed in the seven seals of chapter 6. There's these smaller judgments like international conflict and war and famine and death. And in these judgments, God was was warning about the consequences of sin and, and the coming judgment. Well, the seven trumpets that we will get to here in chapters 8 and 9, they sound a similar warning, but with... Heightened, heightened severity. And all of this is in hopes that those with ears to hear will heed the Lord's warnings and find shelter from His wrath in Jesus Christ. So let's read verses uh, 6 to 13, and then we're going to discuss these first, first four trumpets. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead Woe, woe, woe. To those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. 
How should we approach these uh, seven trumpets? That's the first of four questions I want to answer this morning. How should we approach these seven trumpets? For starters, we need to approach them with humility. Okay, I've found the imagery in chapters 8 to 9 far more challenging than the first seven chapters. Uh, And I'm not alone in that. Christians throughout history interpret these trumpets uh, differently. But I think we'll find that amidst the differing views, the primary message of these trumpets stays clear for those who in humility desire to keep the words of this prophecy, desire to submit to the words that are written in this book. Another point about approaching these trumpets, uh, recall what we learned a few weeks ago about the way trumpets were used in the Old Testament. Sometimes they would call the people to to worship, gather the people to, to worship the Lord, Sometimes they would, they would call the people to war, like when they were going into the land of Canaan. But there are a few occasions where trumpets called people to, to wail in the face of God's judgment. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, for example. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And that's how these trumpets work in Revelation. These trumpets bring woes, verse 13. They they serve as warnings before the the full storm of God's wrath arrives. And then also think back to the story of of Jericho in in Joshua chapter 6. You know, God judged the city of Jericho for their their rebellion. Uh, But part of that plan included these seven priests with seven trumpets marching around the city seven days, and on the seventh day, with the seventh trumpet blast, God devoted the city of Jericho to destruction. Now, in Revelation, we've seen that angels function in a priestly role uh, in in heaven. What do you think it conveys when seven of these priest-like angels receive seven trumpets? Right? It signals that the rebellious city of man will soon crumble before the kingdom of God. You kind of get a small picture of that, right? With Canaan and Jericho, but but here we're we're dealing with a much on a much greater scale that the rebellious city of man will soon crumble before the kingdom of God. So when you approach these trumpets, you need to be asking yourself. Am I more like Rahab, who hears of the Lord approaching in judgment and casts herself on His mercy? Or will I reject God's ways and crumble with the rebellious city of man? That's another way we need to approach these trumpets. The seventh trumpet will eventually sound. So where are you at? But there's another layer also to consider here. Um, And uh, in hearing the passage, your ears may have have perked up when you heard things like hail and fire. 
and waters turning to blood and uh, darkness replacing the light. Right? Your, your ears perked up when you heard those things because you recall that they resemble the plagues on Egypt in the Exodus. Okay, they're worse and they're more widespread. Still, connecting them to the Exodus gives, will give you kind of a broader context for understanding them and how they're functioning here. Why did the plagues fall on Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Partly, God sent the plagues on Egypt in response to his people's cries. Okay, that's the same thing that happens here in Revelation. The martyrs, if you remember from chapter 6, verse 10, they cry out to the Lord under the altar, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? In chapter 8, verse 4, we saw their prayers rising before God like sweet incense. And now here in chapter 8, verse 6, the trumpets start to blow. The the plagues will come in response to his people's cries. So these trumpet judgments are part of God's response to his people's cry for deliverance. Also, in the Exodus, especially like Exodus 12, verse 12, we we see there how the Lord viewed those judgments, those plagues on Egypt. They came as, as, as signs of God executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Okay, so they weren't just about bringing judgment on the people. They were bringing judgment on all their gods, all their false idols. The plagues proved that there was none like Yahweh in all the earth, Exodus 9.14. He turned creation against Egypt to demonstrate his power so that everyone might know that the earth is the Lord's. That's the same with the trumpets in Revelation. God is upending false gods. He is upending hopes and false gods and proving that he alone is the true gods. So, the trumpets come for the sake of his people. They come to upend the false gods of the nations and they come to prove that God alone is glorious in power and all of this is in hopes that others repent before the final trumpet blows. Okay, so those observations should be sitting in the back of your mind as you, as you come to these trumpets. Now, let's look at the first four. Okay, what do these first four trumpets represent? Trumpet number one. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire, it says, mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. Okay, from the Old Testament, all of these are signs associated with God judging his enemies. So, uh, let's take a few examples. Genesis 19, verse 24. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah and their unrighteousness. And God rains fire and sulfur on these rebellious cities. Uh, Exodus 9, verses 23 and 24. Egypt is oppressing God's people. And the Lord sends hail and fire on the Egyptians as the seventh plague, and it destroys everything in the field, uh, man, the beast, trees. Also, Ezekiel 38, verse 22, 
prophesies that God is going to destroy a future enemy. This enemy is called Gog. When he gathers against God's people and, and he will destroy them with hailstones and fire and sulfur. Okay, so you, you get this imagery coming up often in the Old Testament and these judgments are foreshadowing what God's future judgment will be like. Only when we get to John's vision in Revelation 8 verse 7, the judgment is worse, isn't it? Hail and fire now mingle themselves with blood. Blood being a sign of war, of of bloodshed. Um, Also notice how they affect not just a city like Sodom and and, and not just a nation like Egypt. It says a third of the earth was, was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and then all the green grass was burned up. So these judgments are like the old ones, but, but they're far more severe and, and widespread. What's with, you know, affecting the earth, trees, and grass? What's, what's that all about? Well, in Revelation, uh, the, the earth is God's good gift to man. It is the dwelling place He provides His creatures uh, it provides fruit, uh, the trees. The trees provide fruit like olives and oranges. The trees provide lumber for ships and chariots and other precious furniture. The grass included food for the cattle and the sheep, which is also where the people got milk and meat, right, and leather and linen. The problem, though, In in Revelation, the problem that it paints, though, is that man, in his sinful state, exchanges the creator for the creation. Man, in his sinful state, uses the earth not to bring God glory, but to build a kingdom for self. Man, in his sinful state, ignores God and sets his hope in the creation and what the creation can give him and what the creation can do for him quite apart from God. Indeed, sometimes in Revelation, sinful mankind is called those who destroy the earth. Those who destroy the earth. So instead, the picture is, instead of stewarding creation for the worship of God, it becomes a life-sucking factory for the idols of man. And it's for that reason that God turns the created against turns the created order against sinful man. Read Revelation 18 when you get home, and uh, what you will see there is that all of the merchants of the earth who are dealing with with the, the products all, all uh, and, and buying and selling all these things, all the merchants of the earth they weep and they mourn at the downfall of their kingdom. All of their hopes were bound up with the linens and the scented wood and the, and the uh, precious furniture and the cinnamon and the spice and the wine and the cattle and the chariots. With their wealth, they thought they were invincible until God basically comes in and upends all of their hopes. He causes their city to crumble. The trumpets here are a precursor to that final judgment in chapter 18. And that's what's going on with the earth, the trees, and the grass. God is basically upending people's hopes in false gods. Okay? 
Trumpet number two in verse eighteen. In, in verse eight, it says the the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. All right, that last part probably reminds you of uh, the first plague on Egypt when God turned the Nile in into blood. And if you go back and you kind of read through the Exodus account, as well as how some of the prophets talk about the Exodus, you see that the Nile River was, was uh, Egypt depended on the Nile River, river for, its, for resources and, and to have healthy crops. And, uh, and the pharaohs would go down and visit the river every morning, every day, as a way of teaching the people that Pharaoh had sovereignty over the river. You even get this this image in uh, Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 3. It pictures Pharaoh before the Nile River, and he says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. The audacity, right, of this king. What happens when God turns it to blood? He's displaying for the Egyptians, this guy's just a pretender. He is no God. He doesn't own the Nile. I own the Nile. I made the Nile. So he's proving that Pharaoh and his gods are false. And that's what's happening here in Revelation. God is again upending people's hopes in the false gods that they make of the created order. He's turning creation itself against those who abuse it for their own idolatrous ends. This time it affects a third of the living creatures in the sea, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Ships. What's up with that? Well, they're really important for making money. Trade. Right? That's what, and that's what, again, you see in Revelation 18 later on, is among those who mourn at Babylon's Doubt, downfall are the shipmasters and the seafaring men and the sailors and those whose trade is on the sea. You see them crying and mourning and throwing dust on themselves. And they say, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by Babylon's wealth. They grew rich by Babylon's wealth This smaller judgment in chapter 8, verse 8, is a precursor to that greater final judgment on Babylon, which in Revelation is a code word for the rebellious city of man. You've only got two people, two kinds, two cities in Revelation, right? You have the city of God, and that's where all God's people belong, and you have the city of man, Babylon. I think that's why John sees a great mountain burning with fire here. Some associate that mountain with a volcano uh, or, or a meteorite. Others have suggested it represents an angel. See, see angels sometimes compared to mountains in Second Temple literature. I'm more persuaded by a connection with Jeremiah, 20, uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 25, though. Jeremiah 51, verse 25. It's a prophecy against Babylon. And God says this. He says, I am against you, O destroying mountain. He's talking about Babylon, but he calls Babylon a mountain. And they are a destroying mountain, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you. 
and roll you down from the crags and make you a burned mountain. Now, if that's a legit connection, then God is here warning the rebellious city of man by upending one of its main sources of income. It's, it's God's way of saying, all you who love this wealth and, use, and, and set that wealth above me and my purposes, I will see to it that your kingdom crumbles. It will not last. You will not last. Trumpet number three in verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now some Christians see this falling star as a comet you know, crashing through the atmosphere. Uh, A little better is that it's an angel. Uh, In Revelation, John identifies angels with stars. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 20. We'll see it again in chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, A few others connect it to Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. And in that prophecy, the king of Babylon is likened to a star, a glorious star that, that, that uh, has grown proud and then God humiliates that star by casting him down to the earth. So kind of, you'd see the parallel there with him destroying Babylon, the mountain, right? Casting it in the sea. Now another parallel with the king of Babylon. He, now he's being cast down in, to the earth. Uh, as a way to say the Lord will humiliate him. So in any case, however you see it, the name of the star is Wormwood, and Wormwood is helpful here in understanding what's going on. Wormwood is an extremely bitter herb, uh, and the Old Testament would often use Wormwood as a metaphor. All right, Proverbs 5, verse 4, for example. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey... And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Her feet go down to death. And so in the Proverbs, you get this picture of God's path leading to life and the path of the forbidden woman, if you follow it, it will be like drinking the bitter cup of death. Okay, similar imagery occurs in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. God forces Israel to drink bitter water as a punishment for their idolatry. Revelation picks up the same imagery, but he's, he's applying it on a worldwide scale. We're seeing a vision of God causing idolaters to drink the bitter cup of death. And by the way... This stands in contrast to what God's people drink. Remember chapter 7, verse 17? What do God's people drink? The ones who are sealed, they get to drink living waters before the throne of God's presence. Idolaters do not get that drink unless they repent. Their end is the bitter cup of death. 
And so the third trumpet here is a picture that's warning people that if you choose your own way over God's way, it will lead to the bitter cup of death. And that's all you'll get. Trumpet number four. Uh, Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the night might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So this darkness here is reminding us of the ninth plague against Egypt. And uh, when you're thinking darkness here, don't think the lights are off in the house and you can still kind of make out some silhouettes of some items. No, the way, if you go back and read Exodus, the way it describes that darkness is a darkness to be felt. It is a pitch darkness. You cannot see anybody's face. You cannot see their smile. You, can't, you don't know where anything is. It, is. it is a darkness that is isolating and it traps you and it disables you. Same in Revelation, only it's not localized to Egypt. It affects everyone under the sun, moon, and stars. In darkness, I think if you go back and think where we've been with uh, those who are buying and selling and producing and doing all the things to make the money, to support their idolatrous ends by throwing them into darkness. I mean, with darkness, there's crops don't produce. People can't work. Right? In the Old Testament, it's also true that certain people worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so whether you worked by the light or you worshipped the light, God's judgment will fall in a manner that touches all of their idols. God will leave idolaters isolated and undone in darkness that's, that's what idolatry earns you, a world of darkness. So this is, this is a picture that the, the, we shouldn't think of these sequentially, like this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. John is more so painting a collage of images for us of, of, of what God's judgment will, will be like. In some, people have abuse the created orders, serve their idols, and through these judgments, God is warning them. He is warning us with each trumpet blast. He, he is, he is uh, shaking another wall in the city of man. He upends hopes and false gods and leaves idolaters defeated in darkness and death. That's what's going on here. That's the picture being painted. Now, a third question is to consider... And it's kind of fun to talk about is when do these judgments come? When do these judgments come? Right? That's kind of the question that everybody likes to talk about. My short answer is at some point in God's plan. Here's my longer answer. Some will limit these events to, say, the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I struggle with that because there's good reason to believe that Revelation was written around AD 90, much later after the fall of Jerusalem. Also, a third of the earth, a third of the sea, and so forth seems like worldwide 
events. Others prefer to limit these judgments to a seven-year tribulation at the very end of history. I'm not convinced by that either for reasons I laid out when we covered the sealed judgments. My own take, at least this Sunday, see how other Sundays go, uh, is built on several observations. One is that I understand the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl to signify the same event. Okay, which is, if you read the seventh seal, trumpet, and bowl, you'll see the same language used to describe the same event. Okay, which is, I think is the return of Christ. In other words, each series of seven takes us to the very end and then it's wrapping back around a bit to unveil more. All right, another observation is that the events in trumpets one to four only affect one third of the earth versus the whole creation, like we saw in the sixth seal. Okay, so, uh, and then at the same time, these judgments are worse than the ones we observe in seals one to five. Instead of one fourth, which is mentioned in the seal judgments, one fourth, the trumpets affect one third. And so the warnings are escalating the closer you get to Christ's return. So here is, here's how I would sketch it. Okay? On the screen there, the, the seven seals gave us a snapshot of history between Christ's resurrection and return. Trumpets one to six then seem to overlap with the seal judgments but escalate the warnings as Christ's return draws nearer. All right, that's my attempt to put together when you may understand the historical outworkings differently. In the end, here's here's where we must find unity, and I think will be easy to find unity when it comes to obedience. I don't think the timing matters when it comes to obeying this passage. And here's what I mean. If God responds to idolaters this way, if it is his aim to upend all of their false gods, we must turn away from idolatry. Period. Doesn't matter when this judgment comes. Doesn't matter if it's a past judgment that foreshadows the judgment to come, if it's a present judgment happening right now, or it's the judgment coming. If this is how God responds to idolatry, we best be repenting from all of our idolatrous ways. That's where we can agree, right? God doesn't tolerate people abusing his created order four idolatrous ends. And that leads to the final question I want to answer today. What do these four trumpets mean for us? What do these four trumpets mean for us? It means first, repent from all forms of idolatry. Now, John eventually gets there uh, at the end of the sixth trumpet. If you uh, look at chapter 9, verse 20... He says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk 
nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's not the state in which you want to find yourself. They are so enslaved to their idols that even when God starts upending things, they still refuse to repent. Don't wait until then. Don't wait till your heart is this hard to turn away. Walk out repentance now. That is the message here. What should baffle us in these trumpets is not the severity of God's judgments. What should baffle us is that for a time, God limits His judgments at all. He doesn't pour out His wrath all at once. In the seals, He warns with one-fourth, and then He delays. In the trumpets, He warns with one-third, and then He delays. God is patient. God is slow to anger. But let us not presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, Paul says. How are you stewarding the things the Lord has given you? Have the things God has given you, have they only become a means of supporting your idolatrous ends? That is, are you using the created order to serve the Lord and the things that please Him, or are you trading the giver for the gifts? How do you... How do the things you invest yourself in deeply, how do they serve Jesus and how do they serve His people? A few weeks ago, Ben had some good questions when he, when he taught on Jesus' words about laying up treasures in heaven. And he asked us, how do you spend your stuff? How do you use your home? What do you spend your time dreaming about? Where are you directing your vision? I think today's message is a lot like the one that, that Ben preached. It's just that, that, uh, that here it clarifies what happens to those who don't heed Jesus' teaching on wealth. If your hopes are bound up with what money can buy, with, with security in the here and now, then darkness and death await you. That's the message of these trumpets. Learn from God's dealings with nations in history like Sodom and Gomorrah and His dealings with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Learn from God's judgments on Assyria and Babylon and even Rome in John's day. Rich, powerful, seemingly invincible. But God brought them down. Gordon Winham writes, and I think we should... When I read this, you should think about our own nation. Societies that flout standards of decent human behavior and spurn God's messengers 
cannot hope to escape divine judgment. Societies that flout standards of decent human behavior and spurn God's messengers cannot hope to escape divine judgment. That, that's what we see with Sodom and Gomorrah and Pharaoh and the Egyptians and Babylon and Rome. And we should learn from them the judgments on those nations were but warnings for us. So listen to the trumpets. They are like sirens before the coming storm. The rebellious city of man will crumble before God's kingdom. Every people that exploits God's gifts for their own idolatrous ends, every empire that believes their wealth and their power make them invincible, God will upend them. God will prove that He alone is glorious and almighty. Only one kingdom will stand in the end, that of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the message for us is repent. Put away the idols of fame and fortune. Put away the idols of comfort and money. Put away the idols of self and sex. Put away the idols of politics and power. And then seek refuge in Jesus who saves from the wrath to come and for a new creation. Seek refuge in Jesus who saves from wrath and for a new creation. I love how 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 is listing all kinds, of, all kinds of idolaters. Those who are enslaved to money. Those who are enslaved to sex. Those who are enslaved to all kinds of things. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And what we're seeing there is that God sent His Son Jesus into the world to die for our idolatry, to forgive our idolatry, to cleanse us from every idolatrous motive and thought or act that makes us unclean before God, And through that work, when we trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf, we become made righteous before God and sanctified and washed. But even more, Jesus rose from the dead to pour out the Holy Spirit on the church and listen to what Ezekiel 36 promises for God's people. Trey actually read this over us last weekend. I will sprinkle clean water on you And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. From all your idols I will cleanse you. So so every person united to Jesus gets the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit turns false worshipers into true ones. And that's what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, right? God, we, we were among these idolaters. We were among these earth dwellers abusing the created order to serve our own ends. But what did God make us? Through the ransom of the Lamb, right from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, He he bought us, He paid for us to get us out of that slavery and to make us a kingdom and a priest to His God. (laughs) That's who we are. Right? We are the true worshipers now. We belong to the Lamb and we worship Him. 
So for all who take refuge in Jesus, you will be be among those who are sealed for a new heavens and a new earth. Your end will not be the city that crumbles. You will inherit Jesus' unshakable kingdom. The bitter cup of death will not be your end. Rather, you will enjoy springs of living water before God's throne. Darkness will not be your end. You will gain the light of the new Jerusalem when the glory of God outshines the sun. So flee to Jesus Christ for refuge today. Don't wait for the seventh trumpet to blow. Don't be like the arrogant ones in the tower. Be like Rahab. I heard of this God's fame and I need His mercy. Today is the day of salvation. And then finally, rest assured that oppressive worldly powers will not prevail over God's people. Oppressive worldly powers will not prevail over God's people. God wrote this prophecy for a persecuted church. Powerful rulers and empires continue to persecute Christians. But as I said before, these trumpets come in response to the cries of God's people. We should note that your politics will not upend strong and mighty nations. Your prayers will. These trumpets show that God hears the cries of His people and in due time He will upend all the oppressive nations and their false gods. The Lord will turn creation itself against those who oppress His people. He will topple their power and avenge the blood of His people. And therefore, when you 